Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You probably remember the answer. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Just before his crucifixion, he gathered his uh, disciples together and he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Well, what was new about that? Here's the new part. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus establishes himself as the standard for how we love other people. And then he adds, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, this is how you're going to know. People are going to know that you're a follower of Jesus by your love. So, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The new commandment is far less complicated, but far more demanding. Jesus says, stick to the essentials. Love God with all your heart and love people as I have loved you. Alfred Joyce Kilmer wrote too little because he died too young. He was a victim of World War I. Many people remember him as, by what they consider his greatest poem, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. But I don't think that was his greatest poem. He wrote this one. Whenever I walked to suffering along the Erie track, he lived around Lake Erie, I'd go by a poor old farmhouse with its shingles broken and black. I suppose I'd passed it a hundred times, but I'd always stop for a minute and look at that house, the tragic house, the house with nobody in it. Tragic because a house is meant to fold its arms around life. Without life in a house, it's sort of like a shell with a broken heart. It's made to fold its boards around people, to shelter children's laughter, to give privacy to a husband and wife, to offer a place of safety to friends. But there's something sadder than a house without love or without life, and that's a church without love. Church is supposed to play, supposed to be a place where you come and you say, I love this place. I feel that people love me, and I love the people. Maybe this has not been your experience. This caused you to keep church at arm distance. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. If you're using our Bibles under the seats, it's on page 1,108. Luke 15 is one of the greatest chapters in the book of Acts. It tells us about a lack of love, a conflict that brews in the early church. It has the, all the markings for blowing the church apart. Had they not dealt with the conflict wisely, it would have split the church. I find, I find in it five elements common to conflicts. First, Something good is happening. Whenever there's a conflict, there's something good happening that's worth 
fighting about. Good things are happening in the early church. Thousands of people have given their lives to Christ. In Acts 1 to 9, we learn about people coming to Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. In Acts 10, we learn about people giving their lives to Christ that are Gentiles in Caesarea. In Acts 11, we learn about Greeks giving their lives to Christ in Syrian Antioch. In Acts 13 and 14, we learn about hundreds, maybe thousands of people who became Christians as a result of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Good things are happening. Second, troublemakers arise. Whenever there's a conflict, somebody stirs up the conflict. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Gentiles are being welcomed into the church by baptism without circumcision. They're becoming Christians without also becoming Jews. They are retaining their own identity and integrity as members of various nations. It's one thing for the Jerusalem church to give approval to the conversion of Gentiles, but can they approve of conversion without circumcision, of faith in Jesus without works of the law? We call these troublemakers Judaizers. Uh, they want to keep the, Jewish, the Christian faith Jewish and force new converts to adhere to the Jewish law. They realize if they don't take control of the church in its early years, they will lose control of the church to Gentiles. There are many more Gentiles in the world than Jews. The Gentiles were known for loose moral practices, so they decide if they can get the church to adhere to the Jewish law, things will not get out of hand. Third, polarization takes place. A battle lines are drawn. You've experienced this, conflict in your life. Maybe it's with your mate. Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's with your, a parent. Maybe it's with a team. Two groups form, have two different opinions. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So we have Judaizers on one side and Paul and Barnabas and the Gentile believers on the other. The Judaizers try to form it as a conflict between Peter, James, and the Jewish Christians and Paul and Barnabas and the Gentile Christians. There's division in churches today like no time in history. Christians are divided over COVID, over vaccine mandates, mask mandates, over social unrest, politics. You know this. I don't understand why people don't understand that the media is trying to make money. There's money in division and fear. 
The news is trying to divide us and make us afraid. Then there's social media. Everyone has a microphone. Or at least that's the way it's supposed to be, but recently social media has deplatformed people that don't share their viewpoint. It has decreased the IQ of our conversations. People come today to church with their filters about COVID and mandates and social unrest and politics. Pastors can't take a side, but people want them to. When a pastor takes a side, they are telling half the people, you're not welcome. When pastors stand in the middle, they're attacked from both sides. It's interesting that Jesus interacted with two tax collectors, uh, Matthew, one of his disciples, and Zacchaeus. But he never said a word about the unjust tax system. Jesus never took a side, left or right, on cultural issues. To reduce polarization, pastors have to speak to matters of the heart, not politics. Fourth, a leadership meeting is held. When there's a, a conflict, ultimately, it's going to be taken up by the, the, the top governing body of the organization or church. The Judaizers' insistence that Gentiles, uh, Christians, must be circumcised and adhere to the Old Testament law causes a dispute with Paul and Barnabas. So a meeting is scheduled with the apostles in Jerusalem. Finally, a solution is found. The solution will either break the church or the organization or heal it. Luke identifies four main movements in this meeting. First, there's a speech by Peter in verses 7 to 11, a speech by Paul in verse 12, a speech by James in 13 to 21, and then a conclusion, a conclusion is drawn. They reach a conclusion that rescues the church from the brink of disaster. We're still benefiting from the wisdom of the council in Jerusalem in 49 AD. James and Peter the leading spokespeople for the early church speak out on the side of Paul and Barnabas. They avert a church split by urging their brothers and sisters to stick to essentials. Love God with all your heart and love people as Jesus loves you. The Jerusalem Council serves as a case study in how to maintain unity in a church. If we want to cultivate a loving church united around our purpose to inspire people to follow Jesus, we must learn from the Jerusalem church. What brings harmony in a church? Four things. First, demonstrate that God is behind a movement. After much discussion, Peter stands and speaks. He reminds them of what happened in 39 AD when God sent him to tell the gospel to Gentiles in Caesarea. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you must know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, if Peter had just gone to Caesarea on his own initiative, that would not have been a definitive. But he says, God is the one 
who sent me. God's behind this movement. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Now, how would Jewish Christians know that God had accepted Gentile Christians into the church? How about if he gives them the same sign he gave them? Remember in the first two chapters of Acts, when the early Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came and they began to speak in languages they'd never learned? Then the same thing happened to the Gentiles in Caesarea. That's how they knew that God was accepting Gentiles as much as Jews. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Then James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. He says God is behind the movement. To substantiate his claim, he quotes Amos 9, 11 to 12. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. By the way, watch. He's going to show us how to interpret Old Testament prophecy. After this, I will return and build David's fallen tent. So everybody assumes this means the restoration of Israel. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. He says this prophecy is fulfilled by the coming of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles are called to be part of the church. You want to cut off conflict in the church? Demonstrate that God is behind your proposal, and you will squelch opposition. After all, who wants to stand against God? Something He's doing. Second, affirm that salvation is by grace alone through faith. Uh, the Judaizers are not opposed to the Gentile uh, mission, but insist that it comes under the umbrella of the Jewish church. Gentiles must not only submit to baptism by faith in Christ, but also be circumcised and adhere to the Jewish law, like they required of Jewish proselytes. We need to be clear what they're saying. They are insisting that without circumcision, converts cannot be saved. They are telling Gentile believers that belief in Jesus is not enough. Not sufficient for salvation. They must add to faith circumcision and add to circumcision adherence to the Old Testament Jewish law. In other words, they must let Moses complete what Jesus started. The issue is immense. The way of salvation is at stake. In contrast, Peter and James stand up and say that salvation is by grace alone through faith. Peter asks, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks? He's talking to the Judaizers. By putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we 
nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. He says salvation is a free gift of God. It's not something we work for. The Gentiles had believed in Jesus. They've heard the gospel and they received the Holy Spirit. God gives the Gentiles the same sign of the Holy Spirit that he gave to the Jewish Christians. Grace and faith make us all equal before God. None of us can claim that we're good enough to earn our way into heaven. When I was a senior in high school, my um, cousin got into trouble with the law. She got in with a rough crowd, started taking drugs, she traveled with a boyfriend and forged a number of bad checks. She was being trailed by the police in three different states. Eventually, she was caught, indicted, convicted, and did time in the Salem Penitentiary. My aunt and uncle were just appalled by what she had done. They were so upset by it, and they were crushed by the weight of debt that they now assumed for her. My father flew up from San Francisco to see them. Uh, we grew up in the San, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he wrote out a check for all the debt. They said, thank you, thank you, Warren. Warren's my middle name. Do you like it? We will pay you back every penny. He said, no. This one's on me. He did for them what they couldn't do. And that's what Jesus does for us in salvation. As you bring friends to Christ, family members to Christ, don't give them a list of do's and don'ts. They are not essential. There's an important principle for us here. We are to be adamant about essential Christian doctrines like salvation by grace alone through faith. Peter, James, and Paul agreed at the council in Jerusalem that there's only one way to be saved, by belief in Jesus, his death on the cross. They found that faith in Jesus is sufficient and must not be a supplement to something else. They vehemently disagreed with the Judaizers who taught that faith in Jesus was not enough, that circumcision and works of the law had to be added. Today, people try to add different things to faith in Jesus. We must stand adamantly opposed to any gospel that suggests that Jesus is not enough. Third, minimize restrictions that hinder non-believers from coming to Christ. So in verse 19, James draws some conclusions. It is my judgment. James was the leader of the church. Therefore, this is Jesus' half-brother, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He says Jewish Christians should not put a burden on Gentile believers coming to Christ with the requirement of circumcision and adherence to the law. He says we're not going to put any further burden on them except things that are essential. At circumcision remained a requirement for salvation, it would have hindered the Gentile 
mission for Gentiles considered circumcision humiliating and offensive. It was a bold decision by the Jerusalem church because the decision not to hamper Gentiles from coming to Christ spelled the end to the Jewish Christian church. Decisions brought persecution on the mother church in Jerusalem. James, the brother of John, was martyred. Peter was imprisoned and cast out of Jerusalem. Paul, and eventually he was martyred. Paul was attacked in Jerusalem as one who betrayed Judaism. He too eventually was martyred. Even James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church, was martyred in 62 AD, even though as a Christian he was a diligent follower of the Jewish law. He was put to death for granting freedom to the Gentiles. By 66 AD, the Jewish Christian movement had been driven out of Jerusalem totally. I appreciate the attitude of the apostles in finding a solution that would not hinder Gentiles from coming to faith. It's just as important today that we not allow COVID policies, how we vote, or anything else to keep people from coming to Christ. Finally, let love be your guide. The apostles deliver a letter to the Gentile churches. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. They're distancing themselves from the Judaizers. So, we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas risked their lives by taking the gospel to Gentiles. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. You say, what are these things? These don't sound like essentials. These are not essentials for salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. They are things they're asking the Gentile Christians to do so they can get along with the Jewish Christians. If we're going to be in the same church, here are four things that are abhorrent to Jews. Please abstain from food sacrificed to idols, eating meat that still has blood in it, from the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. Gentiles were known for their loose moral uh, practices. You say, what in the world are these things? These don't seem like essentials. They're not essentials for salvation. They're essentials for getting along in the church. Paul was resolutely unwilling to compromise the truth of the gospel. He resisted the Judaizers and passionately spoke out at the Jerusalem council. But once the f- principle was firmly established that salvation was by grace alone through faith in Christ's death and that it was not you didn't have to have circumcision in adherence to the Jewish Old Testament law, he was prepared to accept these 
compromises in order to have peace and harmony in the church. The Jerusalem Council secured a double victory, a victory for truth in confirming that salvation is by grace alone and a victory for grace in preserving fellowship by being sensitive to Jewish Christians. Paul was strong in faith and soft in love. In matters of essential doctrines of faith, we ought to be adamant and more hard. But in sensitivity to people, we ought to be soft and more flexible. The Gentiles knew that they were saved by grace, but they were not to flaunt their freedom and antagonize their Jewish brothers. You say, that's legalism. No, it's maturity. If something I do causes my weaker brother to stumble, then I should voluntarily refrain from doing that. So, let's stick to essentials. Love God with all your heart and love people as Jesus loves you. Church may be the last place where Republicans and Democrats can gather together and talk with each other. Americans are dying for this. They hate the tension going on in our country. So let's demonstrate that God is behind our movement. People will rally behind, inspire people to follow Jesus if they sense that God is in it. Let's teach that salvation is by grace alone and not get sidetracked on little things that don't matter. And let's set aside things that get in the way of people coming to Christ. Let's stick to the essentials. Love God with all your heart and love people as Jesus loves you. If you feel like you've never given your life to Christ, as we pray right now, you can just tell him you believe he's the Son of God and was raised from the dead and invite him to come into your life and forgive your sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great chapter in the book of Acts, Acts 15, where we see that they agreed that salvation was by grace alone and nothing else had to be added to it. And they were sensitive to people uh, in order to get along in the church. And they showed love to them. If you want to tell God today that you want to do that, this week you want to stick to essentials and love God with all your heart and love people as Jesus has loved you, you tell him that, that you want to treat people with the utmost respect and love this week. And if you've never given your life to Christ, you can do so right now as we pray. You pray. Father, we love you, and we want to love people the way Jesus has loved us. Help us do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray.